thinking together on our first section, um, what is this, our second section, but the last one was just like a couple words, so we get a little bit bigger chunk today. Um, and our text for this week is so rich and such depths to explore. Um, there's so much that we could think about and there's a lot that we got to study in um, our, our workbooks. Um, but for this morning, um, since we can't address all of those topics in our limited time together, what I'd like to spend our time on this morning, at least my time with you, is reflecting on God's good gift of Sabbath rest. Um, having spent the last year in Honduras, one of the things that was overly clear to me over and over again is um, two really different things about the culture from Honduras and here in the U.S. is here we value productivity and efficiency, and those are not values at all in Honduras. And so um, our culture here does really um, prize productivity and efficiency. And because of that, we've really come up with a lot of amazing technological advances because we've really pursued as a culture saving time and streamlining processes. And so some amazing things have come out of that. However, our cultural obsession with optimal productivity can hinder our enjoyment and our trust in God's design for rest. And so one of the homeworks that Jen had for us was um, underlining some of the repeated phrases in Genesis 1. And so there was one repeated phrase that wasn't given a color and might have slipped your attention. Did you notice how each day was described? And there was evening and there was morning, the second day, the fourth day, the seventh day. Our cultural viewpoint thinks of the day beginning at sunrise. Or maybe if we're feeling technical, maybe at 12 a.m. when it officially turns to a new calendar day. But God describes a day in a very different way. Evening, then morning. So counting days from sunset to sunset is the Hebrew way of thinking. And it continues today. Even if you go and visit modern Israel, you're going to find that Sabbath begins Friday evening and then carries over into the day of Saturday. And so, what if God created us to work from a place of rest? We don't put in a good day's work so that we deserve a night of slumber. Rather, we can work best after enjoying the rest that God has already provided for us. Jesus seems to commend this posture in John 15 when he admonishes his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. When we think of the splendor of God's creation, our minds instantly go to the vast array of stars, maybe the abundant diversity of sea and land animals, or the complexity of the human body. But amazingly, God dedicated as much time in the week of creation to rest as he did to creating lights in the expanse of heaven, the sun, moon, and stars. It's hard to imagine a world without an ocean or, a green, or green plants, but yet it's easy for us to settle into rhythms and an existence without the rest that God designed and ordered. So to gain a better understanding of what God designed for Sabbath rest, let's look this morning at um, God's example of rest in the creation narrative, and then his commands for Sabbath rest for God's covenant community, and then how Jesus practiced 
and uh, the Sabbath day, and also affected the Sabbath, because followers of the sect have uh, affected the Sabbath for years to come. So, at the beginning in Genesis 2, uh, those first verses that she had us look at, the drama of creating the heavens and the earth comes to completion. And so God, even though he wasn't tired, rested from the work he had done and blessed the seventh day, making it holy and different from all the other days of the week. And then, the first time we read the command for God's covenant people to adopt the same practice of Sabbath rest is in Exodus 16. Remember how Jen shared with us that Moses wrote the five books of the Pentateuch to prepare God's people to live well in the promised land God was giving them. And if you read Exodus 16, there's some hints in the text that God's people should already know about the Sabbath. And interesting, this particular passage is applying Sabbath rest to the situation of gathering manna while the Israelites are in the wilderness. But then the command officially comes uh, for Sabbath rest in the Ten Commandments that are given on Mount Sinai. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Then in Exodus 31, um, it again reiterates the importance of the Sabbath command for God's people and how it came directly from the Lord that he wrote it with his own finger on tablets of stone. And then this telling of the command also gives the punishment of death for those who work on the Sabbath day. And Exodus 31 describes how the Sabbath is forever a covenant sign between the Lord, who in six days made heaven and earth, and his people, Israel. And then Leviticus 25 also includes instructions to the Israelites regarding the Sabbath year. It says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest, or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land, and all its yield shall be for food. So as you can imagine, it took the Israelites a lot of faith to believe God to provide for them by giving the land uh, a Sabbath rest. And so they didn't often follow God's command, and as we'll find out later, there were some severe consequences for that. And then the Ten Commandments are restated again in Deuteronomy 5 as the people prepare to enter the Promised Land. And this time, the Sabbath is also given as a reminder that they were once slaves in Egypt, and now that they're free people. And so as free people, 
they can enjoy the good rest of the Lord. Psalm 92 provides a song for the Sabbath day. And then Isaiah 58 describes how the attitude of God's people towards the Sabbath matters as much as properly keeping it. The prophet says, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father, Jacob. What's highlighted to me in that passage is that delighting in the Sabbath day helps us to find joy in the Lord. And I think that's a, a good encouragement. And then in Ezekiel 20, um, as, as things are going bad for the Israelites, the prophet declares the apostasy of God's people, which include the utter desecration of the Sabbath day. And so we can see from these many passages that the Sabbath day is a serious command for the, from the Lord to his people. He gave us the example, and then he offers that command to his people. It's both a sign of their covenant together and as a witness to the world around them that they're different, that they're set aside for the Lord's purposes. And so honoring the Sabbath day was to remind them of God's role in creation, that he was the creator. His deliverance, he brought them out of Egypt and his ongoing relationship to them. He was going to be their provider. And keeping the Sabbath day holy was also a visible way for them to demonstrate that their hearts were committed to the Lord and that they were not putting their trust in idols. And so this commitment to Sabbath keeping was so serious, there was the, the, the consequence of death. And so we also read about the requirement to give the land a Sabbath as well. And so for generations, God's people just don't do what God's asked to either keep the Sabbath day themselves or to give the land a Sabbath day. And so they're eventually hauled off into exile in Babylon, and the land is given its required rest. And so then when God brings his people back into the land, um, as recounted in Nehemiah and Ezra, they recommit themselves to obeying God's commands to keep the Sabbath day. And so as time passes in the history of, the, of Israel, and having endured the harsh consequences for Sabbath breaking, God's people become so zealous to keep the Sabbath day that they miss God's purposes and design. And it's into this culture of strict Sabbath keeping that Jesus arrives. The religious leaders during Jesus' lifetime are so committed to keeping the Sabbath day that they add extra rules because they don't want God's people to accidentally to break one of God's given rules, um, and so they guard it very carefully. And so one of the biggest complaints that the religious leaders have against Jesus is that he healed on the Sabbath day. That was a prohibition, um, that prohibition was a rule that they had made to protect the Sabbath day. And by golly, Jesus broke it over and over again, and they were mad. So what do we learn about the Sabbath from Jesus? Most overtly, Jesus declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. Um, and I think one of the ways that he addresses the Sabbath most thoroughly is in Matthew 12. Um, so starting at verse 12, I'm going to read the context and the consequences of him being Lord of the Sabbath. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, 
His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have commend, condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, Jesus went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take a hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. To the complete dismay of the Pharisees, Jesus, in making all of these statements, is aligning himself with the Genesis 1 God who creates the heavens and the earth. He says he has much authority over the Sabbath as the God who first rested on the seventh day. And this is utterly unthinkable to them. Pure blasphemy. And so in their disgust, they are unable to behold the reality of who Jesus is, that he is the Genesis 1 God, and as such, he has the authority to heal and to bring life on the Sabbath. So then in other similar passages, Jesus says again that he desires mercy over sacrifice and that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is caught doing such works on the Sabbath and making the Pharisees mad over and over again. He teaches, casts out demons, and heals on the Sabbath. And he also makes the remarkable claim that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And in Mark 3, Jesus is angry that the Pharisees are more committed to their rules than they are to the work of God. He longs for them to recognize the worth of doing good and saving life, even on the Sabbath, and that he is one sent from God. And so, one of the reasons they seek to put Jesus to death is for breaking that command about the Sabbath day, not even realizing that he's the one who gave the command in the first place. And then it's also important to note that the death and resurrection of Jesus have radically changed the landscape of Sabbath keeping. Just as on the seventh day of the creation week, God rested with his work complete, so Jesus rested in the grave on the Sabbath day, having completed the work of redemption that the Father gave him to do. And then when he rose from the dead on the first day of the week, a new creation had begun. All of the resurrection accounts are, are clear about that detail on the first day of the week. And so they're wanting us to notice that something new is happening. Creation is being remade. 
And so over the centuries, Christians began to honor the, the Lord of the Sabbath by making a shift in their day of rest. Instead of celebrating the week's work, they rest to begin their week because Jesus has risen and has inaugurated a new creation. We see just little hints of that beginning um, in Revelation 1 and 10 when John describes that uh, the vision he had was on the Lord's day. And then in Acts 20 verse 7, the followers of Jesus are gathered to break bread together and to hear teaching. But unfortunately, Paul has such a long sermon that some guy falls asleep and plummets to his death. But, but thankfully, then Paul lays his hands on him and, and uh, restores his life and heals him. So I'm glad we have that railing back there in the balcony that if somebody falls asleep, they're not going to die. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul gives the believers instructions about giving on the first day. But still, we see regular Sabbath-keeping, as has been the custom for the Israelites, going on as well during this time. Paul, uh, as part of his evangelism technique, goes out to find Jews who are gathered for the Sabbath day to share the good news for them. His focus is not on the day of their gathering, but that they would behold Jesus as the risen Messiah. And so for these early Christians, especially those of Jewish background, worship consisted of Sabbath-keeping, and resurrection celebrating on two different days. And then Hebrews 4 helps us to think of the, the bigger picture of rest that Jesus has provided for us in the eschatological or end-of-the-age dimension. It says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter the rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And so I hope this kind of overview of some of the snippets in scripture of the Sabbath has um, given you a broader sense of what the Sabbath has looked like in the life of the people of God. And so sometimes we read all this and then it's hard for us to know how to put this into practice as we're trying to enact this new creation um, that has come from Christ's resurrection. And so as Protestant Christians with a strong Protestant work ethic, some 2,000 years after the earthly ministry of Jesus, we're sometimes a little confused about what to do with God's gift of the Sabbath. We see how ignoring it leads to death and exile, and yet a legalistic approach seems to miss God's intention and design. We know we should enter into God's rest because we don't want to be disobedient, um, and we know that the routine of keeping a day of rest is an important spiritual discipline. But what does that practice look like? And so as we think about the how together, it's good to remember the why. What are the spiritual benefits for us that come from Sabbath keeping? And I'm sure you all can add some to this list. One that came to my mind is that the Sabbath reminds us that God is the ultimate creator and provider. Taking a day off from our labors puts our eyes back on the covenant God whom we can trust to care for us and provide for us, even if it doesn't seem like it's with earthly wisdom at play. Next, the Lord commands us to gather together for worship and discipleship. And so a day of rest from our usual labors provides time to do that. And Sabbath restores our souls. We can see that even God was refreshed after resting from his work. And God, um, that doesn't need rest, made the world 
with rest woven into the design. And so we're going to flourish when we follow God's lead. And fourth, Sabbath reminds us that the work is done even when it isn't. That God completed the creation, that Jesus completed redemption, and that our uh, eternal future is secure. And so the work is done even when our work is not. We aren't the ones who hold the universe together. God does that, and even he rested. We are the creation, and God will keep working beyond our time. And so regular rest also helps uh, keep our sense of identity in the proper place. It's so easy for us to think that our, um, our identity is tied up in our work, and we even do that in our questions to kids. We say, what are you going to be one day? What is the work that you're going to do that their identity is tied into their work? But when the Israelites did better at remembering the Sabbath, they also did better at remembering that they belonged to God. And so we need to remember that it's not our work that defines us, but rather our identity as the children of God. And so I know all sorts of great conversations are going to happen in our small groups this morning, um, but I hope that also includes some conversations of how Sabbath practices have shaped your own life, or maybe how for you long for them to shape your own life. I remember the first time that I really felt convicted about keeping Sabbath rest was when I was a student in seminary. And so that's kind of funny because then my full-time occupation was to study the things of God. But also in doing that, you can become disconnected from the God who loves me to just a thing to study. And so during that season of my life, Sabbath looked like spending some time enjoying God apart from my assignments, fellowship with others, and time in God's creation. And that brought me the needed refreshment uh, that I in, that I, had, that I needed to return to my studies with the right perspective. And then during the season of life, when I worked in a church as my main occupation, Sunday was the fullest day of my week. And so I was glad to have a different Sabbath day when everybody else wasn't out and about, um, and I could enjoy some quiet time, some fellowship, and often a, a date night with my husband. And then once kids were in the picture, and I was in ministry with full Sundays still, the best Sabbath days for me were I would take a day of the week and take the kids to the zoo, and I just loved enjoying God's creation and taking time away from email and planning. <coughs> and so for each of us, Sabbath is probably going to look a bit different, but similar in other ways. And there's many practical considerations that I think come up in our minds when we think of how we can really practice the Sabbath. Sustenance is still needed for our bodies. And we as women are often a critical part of preparing that. What does that mean? Could some of our preparation be done on a different day? Or maybe do we take a break from meal preparation? For parents, our work of caring for our children never ceases. We don't get a Sabbath from being a parent. But are there activities that we can do together as a family that are, are more life-giving to us as well? And so some of the best advice that I've heard about keeping Sabbath involves getting adequate rest, worship, and fellowship. And so it's probably going to look a little bit different for different folks in different seasons of life. Someone who works with their hands or does physical labor for their occupation is going to need physical rest to be refreshed. But somebody who spends the week at a desk behind a computer may find that a robust hike is what their soul needs to be restored. Or maybe if we're alone a lot during the week, we just hunger for that fellowship that the Sabbath brings. 
Or if we're with others all week, maybe we just need the quiet presence of the Lord. For me, in this particular season, when each person in my family feels rested from different things, it's harder to meet that unique needs that everybody has to be refreshed. But ultimately, our, our Sabbath rest should connect us to God, not to just be a time of leisure. And so as God's people, keeping a day of rest that honors the Lord is a way for us to show that we belong to him. Our identity is with our creator and that we're living in a new creation that awaits an ultimate consummation. And so how do you sense the Lord inviting you into his perfect rest? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, having finite bodies that get tired can feel like a burden to us. Yet it is a gift, so we don't rely on ourselves, but you. Teach our souls to find rest in you alone. And help us to order our time and weeks in a way that demonstrate we are yours. We pray that as we gather as your people, that you would be honored. That our bodies would be healed by your touch. And that our souls would be restored by your word of truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.